Let's take our reading uh, from John chapter 16. John 16, and we're going to pick up from verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. So John 16 and verse 16 says, Jesus went on to say, remember he's sitting uh, in the upper room with his disciples. In a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child is pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now... You have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In a world of threat and uncertainty, Jesus is creating a distinctive, fear-conquering community of people who live out of the same place and the same resources of confidence that he does in every circumstance of life. Jesus is someone who lives out of joy and out of love and out of peace, the fruit of faith in God, and he invites his followers into the same. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 29 to 30, after he'd made that invitation, come to me? The invitation to his followers is, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what we see Jesus doing with his disciples in the upper room is teaching them and inviting them further in to the same sort of life that he has modeled for them. We see and have seen that Jesus trusts in God's eternal plan. And it's been a joy for him to be part of God's unstoppable purposes. And here Jesus is inviting us into the same joy. He himself is the way into it because he's the centerpiece of God's eternal purposes. We've seen and we continue to see that Jesus lives enveloped in the constant and unchanging love of the Father. And he loves others deeply as a consequence of that. And Jesus is inviting us into that same love. And he himself is the way into it. Love for Jesus, as we've read, in response to his love for us, brings us into the enveloping of the unchanging love of the Father. And Jesus has been someone who's shown what it means to practice peace, a state of well-being, whatever the circumstances might be. And Jesus invites us into that same state of well-being. Again, he is the way into it because he has shown that we can overcome the world as he has done. You know, the natural human response when faced with difficulty is usually self-preservation. But Jesus has been showing us that life can be lived in difficult circumstances that yet is focused on others in those circumstances. He knows that his disciples are going to fail the initial test of their declared faith. They're going to run away when the pressure really comes on them. They're going to run away, verse 31, to their own homes and preserve themselves. And that's because they hadn't yet come into the full understanding of God's purposes in Jesus. They hadn't understood his mission as Messiah, that it would involve his death, resurrection and his ascension. But Jesus knows, and we see it here, that once they have seen him in resurrection glory, they will be a changed people, a changed community, living out of the same resources that he has, living for God and for each other. And that new community appears and grows, and we see it in the book of Acts, and it's a people invested in each other for mutual benefit, so that together they might help each other to overcome the world, to experience joy and love and peace as they live in a world that's just so full of things that disturb and unsettle. You know, when we face difficult and threatening circumstances, it's often that natural response for us to withdraw into ourselves. It's a protective measures response things start to trouble us so we can go quiet and we can withdraw from people. We, we become increasingly focused and maybe even obsessed with our own thoughts and our feelings. And that can lead to self-isolation. You know, what struck me in our study of the Lord and his conversation with his disciples in the upper room is that Jesus facing the ever-tightening squeeze of circumstances 
is the exact opposite of that. He knows what's coming. He knows the crucifixion that will be the center point of history is coming. And yet it seems that he increases his personal investment of himself in his disciples, even up to the very last moment. He doesn't withdraw and go into himself. Instead, he gives himself even more. And that's because he's living out of resources that the disciples are yet to experience for themselves. That trust in God, that knowledge of being enveloped um, by his love, that settled well-being, knowing that God has everything under control. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't experience the reality of the horror of what's coming. Matthew 26 and verse 38 as the disciples would go into the, the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus after the upper room, he said there, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. He's inviting his followers to come and be a support for him. He wants them as much as he has given himself to them. Oh, to be like Jesus. To be a person who is so confidently settled about God's eternal purposes and so convicted about fulfilling the commands of the Father, whatever the circumstances. And the commands of God are summarized in that we should love him with all that we are and love our neighbors and do that in whatever experiences we're condition, conditions we're experiencing. The author Sky Jethani wrote this, Jesus lived and served from a soul at one with the Father and an identity secure in his love. From this inner place, he drew the strength to do mighty works and teach profound truths. But more importantly, he found the courage to endure outward failure, ridicule and abandonment. His inner communion with the Father defined and determined the outward drama of his life. We sit here and we see Jesus and we want to be like him and the scriptures tell us that we can and Jesus is the one who himself is saying come and learn from me. Be an apprentice, come into this learning situation alongside me. So what can we learn from, from what we've seen here? I just want to home in on those three aspects of joy and love and peace. Jesus was one who trusted in God and in his great and good purposes. And for him, that was the path to experiencing a joy that was unbreakable. He said here that he was going away, but he was coming back. He knew what God's purpose was. And for him, it was a joy to be in that purpose. Verse 28 is a summary, really, of, of his mission. He says, I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. It was a certainty. His incarnation, his life of humiliation, culminating in his crucifixion, his resurrection thereafter, and then his ascension. It was all part of the guaranteed plan. You might think it's a little odd that John recounts for us this conversation about in a little while, I'm going away. In a little while, you'll see me again. And he repeats it three times for us. It's almost as if John wants us to slow down on this point. 
and to see that Jesus is absolutely convinced of God's eternal purposes. And he has a joy in being in that. He said that the world would rejoice when they would crucify him. That's a different type of joy. The disciples were going to experience the overwhelming grief and just the wonder as to what was going on. But Jesus' certainty about God's great and good purposes meant he could promise them the same unbreakable joy he had. He said in verse 2, not verse 2, verse 21, your grief will turn to joy. He says, I will see you again and you will rejoice. Seeing Jesus resurrected would be the source of their joy because they would see God's purposes as they couldn't yet see them. No one will take away your joy, he said. No person in this world could come and extract from them the joy that was the result of knowing that we're part of God's great purposes and he has brought us into them. And then Jesus takes them into the importance of prayer in this reality as well. That they're experiencing joy as he experiences joy, knowing part of God's good eternal purposes. And he says that they're going to be able to pray to the Father in his name. He's the living Lord. He's the resurrected one. And prayer was going to become a direct communication with the Father in his name. You know, prayer is a source of joy for us, and it should be, because as we engage in collective and private prayer, we're remembering God's eternal purposes that are centered on Jesus, who is alive. Yes, he's gone to the cross, but yes, he is resurrected. And because he is the living Lord, that gives us joy and confidence in God's good purposes. And we appeal to him, as the Lord Jesus says, ask in my name, ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Are we praying, people? We're praying and remembering in that very moment that we're experiencing unbreakable joy because in our prayers, we're entering in to the reality of God's eternal purposes and remembering that he has brought us into them. So that's a little focus on the joy that Jesus speaks of. But then he speaks about love as well. We see Jesus as someone who had the sure knowledge of being enveloped in the Father's immeasurable love. And he's told the disciples here that after his resurrection, they're going to know the good eternal purposes of God much better. He says, I'm not going to speak in language that you don't understand fully. I'll stop using figurative language. I, I will speak plainly, verse 25, about my Father. After his crucifixion and after his resurrection, they're going to understand the Father's purposes. That's going to give them joy. But also, it's the knowledge of that that's going to bring them into the love that he has experienced himself. They're going to come into that same love as well. This tells us something about that 40-day period after Jesus' resurrection, where he taught them things about the kingdom of God, as it says in Acts 1, verse 3. He took the group and he taught them the things about the kingdom of God, the Father of love, his love now enveloping them, 
and it transformed their lives. You know, unless we really truly grasp what the resurrection is and its importance, and absolutely believe that it changes everything about this life, we're always going to struggle to understand about God the Father and his love for us. You know, Jesus cycles back round in this little section about love, back into the, the comments about prayer. He says, you will ask in my name. He's going to go and be with the Father. In his ascension, he's going to take his place at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's through him then that disciples approach the Father in prayer. And the mention of his name brings us into God's eternal purposes. And there's a joy in that. But in mentioning our approach in the name of the Lord Jesus rem reminds us that our relationship with God is as Father. And we're reminded through prayer that we're enveloped in God's immeasurable love, the Father's immeasurable love for us. You know, Jesus says, you'll ask in my name and you'll receive. That doesn't mean we ask for whatever we want and expect that Jesus is going to sponsor us on that. Do you know the awkwardness when somebody comes to you with a sponsor form for a cause that they're going to exert themselves for, but you don't agree with the cause and you have to sort of wriggle your way out of it? Let's not put Jesus in the same spot. Where did I get this notion of this unbreakable love? It's verse 27. The Father himself loves you, Jesus said because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. The entrance into this love is the belief that God the Father has sent the Son and the Son has come that he might achieve God's eternal purposes. And he himself is the way into that love. And prayer for the believer is the repeated declaration that we believe and that we love the Savior. And in doing that, then we experience the joy of the all-enveloping love of the Father. Jesus goes on to speak, in addition to joy and love, about peace. Jesus has, himself has lived in that settled sense of well-being because he's lived in the personal presence of God. And that has enabled him to overcome the world because he's had this untouchable peace. You see what he says, I have overcome the world, his last line in verse 33. It's a thing in the past. It's, it's his life to that point, lived in communion and presence with his father. That's given him this settled well-being that he wants for us as his disciples. He wants for us to share in his joy. He wants for us to share in the, the knowledge of that all-enveloping love. He wants for us to experience that settled, untouchable sense of well-being. He knew the disciples were going to run away whenever the soldiers would come into the garden. But he could rely on one thing. Verse 32, I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. You know, that knowledge that the Father that we've come into the loving relationship with through belief in Jesus and through loving him for being our savior, that, that relationship we come into brings us into the knowledge that God has promised to be with us, and he's secured that for us 
by giving us his own spirit. You know, union with Christ is being brought into that eternal relationship that Jesus himself had with the Father, and it's secured by the indwelling spirit. Jesus then says, as we, we read, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, being in Christ and in union with him, believing him and loving him, stepping into the all-enveloping love of God, realizing that God's purposes are unstoppable and are for our good. It gives us joy. It gives us a sense of love. It brings us then into this untouchable peace because Jesus has demonstrated that it is possible in this life to overcome the world. There's nothing, no one, that can take the joy from us. There's, we, we are on the victor's side. Jesus has overcome life to this point, and he's, over, he's going to overcome death when he goes to the cross, and then he's raised to life. You know, John picks up on this theme of overcoming in his letter, first letter, first John, as an encouragement to the, the believers that he was writing to. In 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, he says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we see that belief in Jesus is the entrance into this overcoming faith. This overcoming peace that God gives to those who are his. 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14 John says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John was saying that the word about Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures, and what the apostles have been teaching, the word of God, was the means by which, day by day, we can overcome the evil one. And 1 John 4, and verse 4, John writes, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. That's people who would seek to destroy what we have. He says, no, you've overcome them because the one who is in you, that's the Holy Spirit, is greater than the one who is in the world. The Holy Spirit given brings us into this settled well-being. He brings us into this all-enveloping love of the Father and he brings us into this joy of knowing that we're in God's eternal good purposes. What a package for the person who is absolutely convinced about who Jesus is and what he has come to do and who's absolutely seen that resurrection from the dead changes everything about what we might face in this life here and now. I just want to finish with a warning about faking it. You know, in verses 29 through to 32, the disciples, I think, are a little ashamed that they're not able to fully understand what Jesus is saying. And they claim, oh, we, you're now speaking clearly. You're not speaking in figures of speech. Jesus said that after his resurrection, he would stop using figurative language. They claim that, uh, that they understand everything Jesus is saying. But Jesus says, do you now believe? He knows they're going to run away. That Their faith at this moment is small, and it's not going to stand for them. And they're going to run away. But when they see him in resurrection glory, 
then that statement that they've made here, which is really them faking it, is transformed into the reality of what God longs for them. I don't mention it because we might, at times, convince ourselves that our faith and our understanding is sufficient. But Jesus is saying here, that you wait and you step into it. Do you now believe? Jesus invites us, as he invites the disciples here and then, to step into the same sort of life. We have the benefit of living the other side of the cross, and the other side of the resurrection and the ascension. We have it all here for us. So for us to fake it is a dangerous thing. Instead, Jesus says, come, take up my yoke and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Take it up. You'll find rest for your souls. It's what Jesus longs for us, and he models it for us so that we might imitate him and give ourselves and invest ourselves in the same way he did for the benefit of one another. It's a community project, if I can call it that, that we enter into this joy and this love and this peace. It isn't interesting that the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians 5, the first three elements of that fruit are love, joy, and peace. Let's think on these things.